Every night, Joey would take a shower around 10 o'clock, and I thought he was getting ready to go to bed. It later came out that he was changing into his all-black attire to catch the midnight shows at the Baked Potato. Baked Potato was in North Hollywood, close to Burbank. Don Randy, a pianist I had worked with in my days in the recording studios, owned it. Many great jazz musicians performed there, so it was a great training ground for my son. But at 12 years of age, how in the world would he manage to get into an adult club? I have to admit that Joey did look rather mature for his age, and maybe that was his secret weapon to enter. Smokey, decades later, was playing McCabe's with Joey and admitted to being the driver to the baked potato. (laughs) Joey and Smokey ultimately became part of Beck's band, Another one of Joey's friends was a beautiful young man named Tony. He was a drummer as well, and he eventually joined my daughter's band, That Dog, as her drummer. On a conscious level, Lenny and I were maintaining the family unit by making a very big move to another location close by. On some level, when a marriage has survived more than a decade, it's a habit you just don't want to break. Well, there are also so many lives involved when a family separates. But in reality, the walls of my marriage came tumbling down. Beginning in 1980, when I was turned on to Sedona, Arizona, visiting Sedona often was a great diversion for me. I even wrote a song about Sedona. I recorded and pressed some vinyl 45s that were played on KAZM radio. A music friend of mine, James Burton, who was the leader of the Elvis Presley Band, encouraged me to go into the studio and re-record it. Being part of the Warner Brothers family, I had access to Amigo Studios. James surprised me with not only the Elvis Band, Ronnie Tut, Jerry Shep, Glendie Harden, but Chris Hillman from the Flying Burrito Brothers on mandolin. In my dreams, all I needed was Emmy Lou and Linda Ronstadt singing background.
and still under the influence of Elvis only three years after the king's departure, James suggested I do a version of One Night. He also liked an original tune of mine called Thinking of You, as well as a song called Could This Be Magic? You can hear his signature guitar on this tune the best. Every full moon, I found that my sleep was interrupted and that I had an unusual amount of energy. I decided to schedule recording sessions once a month on the full moon. I honestly never thought anyone would hear this music until my current husband, Jared, was going through the garage and found some old boxes. Inside were cassette tapes and dats that were masters of these sessions. Jared made the time to listen to everything and came back to me and said, I want to do something with this. Ultimately, that music became my album, Magic, released in 2009, along with a video that I never thought would be seen of my performance in Tokyo of Hard to Believe. Oh, yeah. Hard to believe. These things probably happen more often than not. Projects are shelved all the time such as eight formerly unreleased masters that sat in the Capitol vaults until 2014 when they were included in my compilation. These are the good times. Something had been preying on my mind since puberty. Even though my life appeared to have so much abundance, deep down, I was suffering from an intense sense of lack. My bust size had always been an issue, and finally, at age 35, I had a breast augmentation. Part of low self-esteem issues is denial and the image you have inside your own head. My sense of lack and not being good enough had always been reinforced by my mother. She, being more well-endowed than I was, created feelings that compelled me to stuff my bra during my teenage years. And after having my third child and completing nursing her, I was left with deflated breasts I just couldn't live with and this any longer. When given an opportunity to take action, I arranged for a procedure. I arrived early one morning at Dr. Leaf's office in Beverly Hills as an outpatient. In a somber room, I sat in the surgical chair placed in the center of the space. 
I was told that I would be able to leave at noon only four hours later. This sounded very casual until I was anesthetized and sometime later woke up to my chest being bound tight. I felt cold from the drugs and very shaky. That night, my left breast began hemorrhaging. And so, early the next morning, I had to return to the same scene. This time, I could not be anesthetized. My body could not take the shock of more drugs. And so, in a sober state, I experienced the stitches being removed from my less than 24-hour scar. The silicone pillow was removed from the cavity and put aside while the doctor vacuumed the blood from that area. In shock from this invasive procedure, all I could do was sob helplessly. Was my feeling of inadequacy being emphasized with more pain? I volunteered for this surgery with the impetus of doing whatever, including risking my life to look like a woman. My natural size was more androgynous, especially then when my weight was 100 pounds. I was too weak to just go home and try to take care of my family, so I booked my girls in and myself into a room at the Beverly Hills Hotel. My son was a teenager by then, and I felt secure enough to leave him at home with his father. After a few days of recovering and much appreciated room service, I returned home to actually a rather perky, youthful, full bus line. I was kind of in awe, looking in the mirror and thinking, that's not me, but now it was. Ultimately, I was happy that I did it. Revolution from Within, a book by Gloria Steinem, strikes a deep chord within me. She writes, The body in our minds is often quite different from the one we're walking around in. She discusses how dieting and cosmetic surgery are unlikely to lead to positive body image without looking inward. In my own case, I felt more superficially confident, but I'm no fool. I know that's not the way that nature provided, so it was another form of manipulation to try to achieve a superficial confidence. I've hidden this information from most people because it is superficial and maybe it shows that I could afford to go and have a procedure done for something that I didn't like about myself. But what is at the heart of the matter is that it didn't really make me happier. It wasn't until many years later when I started delving into my inner voice that my real confidence started showing, which is totally transformative. During the time that I was going in the studio with James Burton, I never thought of going public with any of this music. However, I did reacquaint with my 60s producer, Jimmy Bowen, and attempted a new cover of Wishing and Hoping. Someone I knew in the song publishing business, Linda Perry, offered me Somewhere Down the Road, written by Tom Snow and Cynthia Weil. We had the right love at the wrong time I guess I always knew inside I wouldn't have you for a long time Those dreams of yours Are shining on distant shores And if they're calling you away I have no right to make you stay But somewhere down the road Our roads are gonna cross again 
my former agent at William Morris, Norman Brokow, whom I hadn't seen in 15 years, and asked him if I could play my music. My mind kicked into old patterning of feeling as if I couldn't do this without my parents. Consequently, I invited Maury to go with me. What a time warp, being in the same room with two men who controlled my career before I took charge of my life. Norman was very happy to see my dad, told him how much he liked the music that I had played. He picked up the phone and called another agent from the music department to book me on a couple of shows. In the meantime, I don't know what happened to Maury. Perhaps when the person came in from the booking department, he must have been distracted and gone away with them and left me alone with Norman for a little while. I do recall one thing that was pretty preposterous. Norman opened up his little red diary, turned to a page, and said to me, I had the mundane chore of investing a half a million dollars this morning into a partnership of a private jet. At the time, I was extremely slim, and when I met with Norman, I was wearing a white, heavy lace vintage dress and a pair of red heels. The dress was knee-length, very proper, and with a half a sleeve. It was in the Victorian style and must have been a hundred years old. Maybe it was an old wedding dress. He gave me the once-over scrutiny and said, You're the next Joan Collins. You should be on Dynasty. I wasn't open to his suggestion. If I had said, that's a great idea, he would have picked up the phone and called another department of William Morris and promptly gotten me an interview with the director or writers of Dynasty. That's the kind of power he wielded. But I didn't respond enthusiastically to that comment. My tactic was, well, let's have lunch and talk it over. <laughs> we made plans for a lunch date, and then Maury and I left. My mother ended up telling me, I know you just used him, and your father knows it too. When I had lunch with Norman, I wasn't looking at myself as an artist as much as I was looking at myself as a producer. I thought this would be a good career choice for me at this time in my life. I had already been stigmatized by both my parents, feeding me the thought that at 21, you're over the hill as a performer. Try telling that to Tony Bennett. That old programming can really get in the way sometimes. Norman and I met for lunch at Hillcrest Country Club across the street from 20th Century Fox. This must have been his regular table because as a veteran of show business, he pointed over to another table and said to me, that's where George Burns sits. It was a real slice of old Hollywood. Norman wasn't aware of whom I was married to, and when I mentioned Lenny's name, he said, I'm familiar with one of his former secretaries. Judy Mazel was my client. I made the deal for her book, The Beverly Hills Diet. You know that made her a millionaire. And then he said to me, now she's wearing Chanel and living in the Beverly Hills Hotel. Coincidentally, on one of my retreats to the hotel, I had seen her poolside. Norman and I then went on to discuss my new discovery of Sedona. I told him about my involvement with the arts center there and our vision to build an amphitheater. I had already invested quite a bit of time, energy, and money in traveling there quite often with professionals to assess the reality of building an amphitheater. Norman gave me a blank look and said, What's Sedona? 
Obviously, it was not in his radar and did not resonate with him. However, he did set me up with his agent who booked for PBS. I explained to Norman my concept for a series paying tribute to American composers. The first one would be starring Henry Mancini, just voted American Composer of the Year by the Songwriters Hall of Fame. The name of the series would be called Star Series and coincide with the Hall of Fame's Composer of the Year selection as a televised annual event that I would produce independently. The Henry Mancini event was already being staged at the Poco Diablo Resort in Sedona. I had secured him to conduct a symphony performing his most notable songs. Having the event televised would help the fundraising for the future amphitheater in Sedona. Astoundingly, the cost of a production for PBS was only 125000 which they could recoup easily with all their reruns. It seemed like a win-win and a direction that I wanted to take my career. The previous relationship that I had with Norman was based on Maury dominating me, which I concluded mirrored the kind of man Norman was as well. There was no flexibility in his mind or my dad's thinking that I could do anything other than what I did before. Although my life was chaotic at this time, I had the clarity of thought that a relationship with anyone that fell into an old pattern would not serve me. If I would have played ball with his idea from the very beginning and interviewed for Dynasty, who knows what might have happened. I'm sharing my thoughts with you. The reality is that a man with that much power did not really respect my thoughts and ideas. I think my life was just spinning out of control, and what I needed was to present my ideas and have them listened to. I did accomplish that, but as for winning his respect and trust, I fell short, never gaining traction for the televised portion of the Star Series concert. The Star Series production did feature Mr. Mancini conducting his beautiful music in the Red Rocks and brought to the citizens of Sedona the highest quality of entertainment they had ever experienced. Being a woman of the 80s and feeling very entrepreneurial, I wasn't the only one. Madonna showed up on the scene as the material girl. <laughs> Would I be able to assert myself at this time in my life? like this young woman who was skyrocketing to stardom. Madonna inspired a lot of courage in me, as I think she did for so many females of my generation and my children's generation. And when she did Vogue, she expanded her audience into the gay community. I remember Lenny relaying a meeting he had with Madonna at the Warner Brothers office in Burbank. It was just prior to the release of Like a Virgin. Even though she had a manager and an attorney representing her, she commanded the meeting and made emphatic demands repeatedly. She didn't hold back on her use of mm, and mm, to get what she wanted. Just before the release of the video for Like a Virgin, my eldest daughter and her father had a sneak preview in her junior high school classroom. Oh, he got daddy points that day and my daughter was everyone's hero. How often does a seventh grade class have an experience like that? William Morris Agency booked me on Merv Griffin's talk show where I performed somewhere down the road. The video on YouTube of my performance speaks for itself. The other show I was scheduled to do was opening for Jerry Lee Lewis. 
When I was offered the opportunity to open for him, I had to put a band together. My girlfriend and dance instructor, Sandy's husband, Tim, came from a musical family, and I approached him to help me along with my pianist. Sandy and he were already friends. At one point, before Bruce Hornsby had a hit with The Way It Is, we did a demo of two of his songs at Tim's home studio. Bruce played piano and I sang. I had the confidence in Tim to find excellent musicians, which he did. For my wardrobe, I went to my favorite boutique in Beverly Hills, Charles Gallet. A close runner-up was Donald Pliner's Wright Bank and Clothing Company. Charles Gallet had a collection of all the up-and-coming designers like Giorgio Armani. I saw a dress that looked like Marilyn Monroe's The Seven-Year Itch in lace. This dress by Vicki Teal was what I was going to perform in. My marriage was disintegrating during this process of preparing for the show. However, I took the bold step of talking to Lenny and asking him to bring our three children to my performance. It would be the first live performance I had done since we were married 15 years ago. He agreed, and when it was time for me to go on stage, the audience was chanting, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. My band entered first, and then I walked on to people booing. This did not deter me because, quite frankly, I was honored to open for the killer. My heart did sink a bit, though, knowing my children and husband were sitting in the audience. I opened the show with Ain't That a Shame by Fats Domino. You made me cry when you said goodbye. Ain't that a shame? My tears felt like rain. And on and on. By the time I did my closing song of a new record, I was going to release called Hard to Believe. I had won over the audience. Thank goodness that when my husband and children greeted me afterwards, they were in good cheer and invited me out for a chocolate souffle at Spago, which was literally across the street. Eventually, I entered into the tragedy of divorce. Well, welcome back to our listeners and a new chapter, chapter 15. Donna, how are you today? Oh, my goodness. Reading and reflecting those times is um, a little heart-wrenching for me, I must admit, Dr. Adam. Mm, For sure. And because I think you're talking about so many events and emotions and there's so much to unpack today. There was the personal, there was the, I guess, more professional. And like any experiences that someone has that involve those sorts of emotions and and those sorts of experiences, um, you know, even reflecting on it sometime later uh, is going to be difficult and challenging. And I know, I think our listeners will be particularly grateful because you probably get quite a few questions from listeners, from fans about the so-called, what did you do when you were retired or out of the public eye? Well, thank you for being so compassionate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah it it really um it really does help to have you on board adam well thank you and um and yes 
that is a, a, a constant question. Um, what does one do <laughs> when you're <laughs> out of the public eye? And um, there's a lot of changes that, that happen and a lot of personal growth and, um, and it's still, it's still continuing. Uh, mm. But uh, this particular way of expressing ourselves and sharing information with the public does kind of reunite us uh, to be able to create more of a continuity uh, between the time that I was constantly in the public eye and then, mm. of course, that enormous gap. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, you know, I think unpacking all of this, um, you know, as much as, as we, we can, um, I'm interested particularly in how it felt to go back into a studio after quite a few years, perhaps almost 15 years, to record music again. Mm-hmm. That was like riding a bicycle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was something so familiar to me. And um, it, it was just, it was just a, a wonderful outlet and um, a manifestation of, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to equate it to a journal. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when one has thoughts and, and they take the time to inscribe them into a journal on a fairly regular basis, um, it gives you a sense of something tangible. Mm-hmm. That it's not just in your head, it's not just in your thoughts, it's not just, you know, kind of mulling around in you, but suddenly, you know, you can read a page. And that's what it was like for me. I could I could put my thoughts down and and listen to them and I I can listen to them now and some of them make sense to me and some of them don't, but it's <laughs> based on on, you know, a lot of kind of raw emotion. But being in the studio was really somewhat of a comfort um, because it was so familiar. I mean, I started working in a studio when I was eight years old. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And in particular, the the two uh, amongst the people that you worked with at this time were people you'd known for a, a long time. James Burden, who you had known since you were, what was it, eight? Yes, yes. Yeah. And on so, radio. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it was... Um, it was kind of comforting and and yet you know when when you do go sort of uh, into a situation to express yourself after you've either written something or or you know uh, could be writing a poem or writing a story or writing a song um you know it it just makes everything a little bit more real mm-hmm. and um and then, you know, because I was writing these songs, it was, um, it was almost a little bit of voyeuring, you know, that I don't know if people, the musicians that, was, that were working with me realized, you know, that what I was dealing with, you know, in, at that time, mm-hmm. they just, you know, they were just doing what they were doing and, we, and at their, the top of their game. And um, I had never really seriously gone into a studio to record thoughts that were coming from within me. Yeah. yeah. Um, very different. You know, I've 
just listened to a little bit of Janice Ian and, and Laura Nero and, mm. you know, and when you, when you hear the thoughts that are coming out and, you know, it just comes from their heart, but it's raw emotion and they're in a studio a lot of times, you know, if you just hear them, there's going to be an engineer. There's going to be somebody in the room um, that witnesses, you know, what you're going through. So it's quite personal, but it's, it's again, it just makes your life a little bit more tangible. Mm, that's really interesting, I think. And certainly perhaps our listeners can relate. I was, going, you know, going through some boxes recently because I'd kept – years and years of boxes from when I was uh, completing my PhD some time ago now because I finished the PhD, started a new job, just had to pack everything up, stick it in storage and leave it there. And and even though a lot of it, it wasn't, say, a diary per se or, or more personal feelings, even just looking at writing from that time as I was deciding what to keep and what to get rid of, it's kind of cool to look back and have something to reflect on and to remember or take you back to what that might have been like and as you said some of it makes absolutely no sense to me I had no idea what I was talking about (laughs) when I was writing it but a lot of it is like wow it really takes you back to a time of your life and I was just reminded as you were talking about that um, an interview I did some years ago probably 10 plus years ago now with a musician named Kevin Mitchell who uh, records um, solo work under the name of Bob Evans and he's um, Mm -hmm. actually uh, recorded or or your son Joey um, uh, was one of the musicians on um, Bob's album Familiar Stranger but um, I, I was just sort of having to madly google myself which I do from time to time while you were talking because it kind of reminded me of something that he had said that when Bob slash Kevin was reflecting on, I think, his first solo album and those songs, he said this to me. He said, hearing those songs and those lyrics are like reading an old diary from a decade ago. It kind of makes me smile and also really confounds me. You know, it's that interesting idea of putting something on record, um, you know, for perpetuity and it's reflecting, obviously, who you are and your overarching self, particularly when you've written it, which, as you said, was is different to going to the studio and, you know, recording a song that, that isn't so personal. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it, it is you, but it's also you at a different time as well. So I imagine even reflecting on some of this now and what you wrote about, it's it's an interesting experience. Yes. I mean, I recall some of my children's artwork at a very young age and you know there there might have been uh, a drawing of of you know not a very uh, sophisticated drawing Mm. but a drawing of of a a dog Mm. let's say and the dog had a tear Mm. that Mm. really explains what is going on inside a child Yeah, absolutely. I think if we think about even, you know, art therapy and and things like uh, that, not, you know, not saying that, um, uh, not equating that with with, um, what you see in a drawing necessarily, but certainly those sorts of modalities, I think, can bring things out in children and in all of us, you know, whether it's drawings, whether it's poetry, whether it's song, um, to be able to express something and to, to tap into something that perhaps evades sometimes some conscious putting it into more traditional wording, um, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm 
you know, in terms of let's talk about your surgery as well, because I think that's something else that our listeners will relate to, whether they've had surgery or not, or perhaps even if they've struggled with something like dieting or self-esteem, because I think you write quite eloquently and you use Gloria Steinem as well. And for our listeners, that book's called Revolution from Within, a book of self-esteem um, from Little Brown and Company, just to uh, cite that for anyone interested. Uh, but you use her as a reference point about how even when a procedure can make you look a way that's perhaps more in line with what you would like, so externally, without doing some of the internal work, you're likely to fall short in what you're trying to accomplish. Um, can you tell us more about that? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's probably part of your maturity. You know, <laughs> it's like when I at least for me, you know, a lot of it was how you present yourself and mm. to, to be accepted. And, uh, you know, it started with my parents telling me, don't leave the house, you know, at like 14 or 15. Don't leave the house unless you're camera mm. ready. Mm. Um, you know, uh, it, it, if, if possibly I had been told, you know, we love you for exactly who you are. Um and if you feel like, you know, enhancing or something, but it was never that way. So it was, it was, that's the way I grew up, you know, mm. um, not being accepted for who I was. Mm. And so I thought I had to change things, but I waited, of course, um, until it just kind of smacked me in the kazoo, you know, it just, <laughs> it, just it just like, you know, I, I ended up um, breastfeeding my, my third child for quite a long time, and that took its toll. And so I felt I really needed to do something, and it ended up being that procedure, um, which, you know, then gave me some complications and more suffering. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, mm-hmm. though, uh, you know... I, it it made me feel like I could be more accepted for, you know, just the image of what a what a pretty woman looks like. Mm. Um, and and now, thank goodness, you know, there's this wide spectrum of acceptance for you know what a beautiful female image can be Mm. and then of course you know going back to uh, the chapter i was reading about barbara streisand and i Mm. was 16 years old seeing her you know on stage when she was maybe 21 Mm. and it was so ironic you know that i had just gone through uh you know surgery Mm. (laughs) to change my nose to change my face because that wasn't accepted by my family Mm. and and uh, and and here I'm sitting on you know in a Broadway theater, Barbara Streisand, being accepted for exactly who she is. That either comes from a loving parent or parents or community, or some inner strength that you have that says I'm I'm just okay. I'm enough for the way that I am. Mm. And um, so yeah. That's that's the way it was. Yeah, because it's interesting, and I was thinking of the of the nose job as well. That that chapter, which we um, would have covered quite a while ago in the podcast, in some of the earlier episodes, because 
Yeah, there does seem to be this, and I think probably all potentially young women, um, although, as you said, I think that is changing, but, you know, particularly young women of that time were often put into a box of, of who they were and who they should be and what they should look like and and so on. And so that meeting with Norman Brokow and uh, Maury is really interesting because I think being only seen in the way that a person perhaps remembers you or has experienced you, which can often be in dissonance from who you actually see yourself as or who you want to be or how you want to develop. Um, because I think in your case, Norman remembered you as a teenager, probably quite a a compliant teenager. Um, for for you, I think you were very much put into that box of this is who I am and and this is my role in the family to be compliant. This is the role in my career to take that sort of direction as well. Um, you know, for other people, for our listeners, it could be, fam- you know, that their family sees them a certain way based on their role in the family or particular time in their life. I know with myself, I was a pretty rowdy teenager and it took me years after I was no longer a rowdy teenager um, to kind of be seen a different way in my family. I was always kind of seen a little bit as that troublemaker still. Um, and, you know, that meeting with Norman, I think, is interesting because I'm wondering how you were able to draw out that strength to be able to essentially say no to Norman's idea of you, of, of who he thought you were, particularly given that he was, you know, dangling a, a pretty attractive carrot in the form of dynasty. Well, that was that's really hard. I'm going to... You know, to imagine you being a rowdy teenager. <laughs> but you know what? It really does actually help probably in in your assessment of different characteristics in psychology. You know, if you've experienced it yourself, you, that's kind of a, a good reference point. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I think <laughs> you can go, oh, yeah, I get that. I remember that. Um, <laughs> Don't stay out so late. Don't do what I did. No. Yeah. Of that, but. <laughs> yeah. It's like telling your kid the same thing, but then, you you know, you've got to accept them for exactly yeah. who they are. You know, are. they're probably going to do the same thing that you did or, or their version of it, and that's fine too. Um, <laughs> it's hard to accept, though. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. I so, can imagine. Yeah. But the point you're making about, you know, walking into an office as an adult and having my own thoughts, and then other thoughts were presented to me. Um, there's something that I learned, and I did mention early on in our podcast about ambition. Mm. And my interpretation of ambition was something that was aggressive, mm. and um, and that just didn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was, it goes back to my, my mother-in-law who passed away, um, asking me if I had ever heard of Spinoza. And mm. when I did some research on him and bought a book, you know, that was one of the first things I learned about a uh, Dutch philosopher is mm. ambition is a disease. Mm. Mm. Okay. So I wasn't into power. I wasn't in, you know, I wasn't. I just wasn't into that. And um, I was just coming from a creative point of view. So uh, maybe what the point you're making is that when I was young, I was not empowered in terms of, you know, until I picked up the phone and called the CEO of Dr. Pepper and said, you know, I'm going to raise my own child. And, Mm. 
<laughs> you know, um, until then, my devotion and, and dedication was to complying with my parents' needs. So, um, yeah, I mean, Norman mm. could have been one of these uh, parental figures in my life mm. Mm. that um, matched matched Maury's um, position or, you mm. know, in, and one of authority, which at that point in my life, when I was in my, 30, my early 30s and I saw him, um, it just didn't impress me the same way that it would have uh, during my career when I had to earn money, you know, mm. to support my family. Mm. Um, you know, I was just strictly coming from a creative point of view. And I was also being a little philanthropic by associating with an art organization that showed me this land that they had, you know, that they wanted to develop into a, an amphitheater. Mm. And, you know, and, and it turned out that I knew several people that actually could make that happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I took action on that, which was, which was empowering. And um, yes, I think that you're right. Rather than a, a parent saying, my gosh, I haven't seen, I haven't seen you daughter for a very long time, which can happen. Mm. in reality and i'm really proud of who you've become you know look at you you're assertive you you know <laughs> you have these wonderful ideas um that may or may not be realistic but you know sh showing a, a sense of of um pride in development mm. Mm. but but as you say as you're suggesting that when you're frozen in time and stuck in power you know, that what we're all suffering from, you know, right now is is a, a authoritative uh, figures in this on this planet that, um, you know, do not consider <laughs> how much how, how how many of us, you know, the majority of all life on this planet, uh, you know, they treat us like they're like we're their, you know, their tools to you know, dispense with. Mm, mm. And, um, and so I also think that agents as, you know, when we talked to John Hartman, um, who became a manager as, as well as he began as an agent, when you're taking your 10% of somebody else's effort, and of course you're earning it by providing them with the link that they need. Mm. Um, it's a strange relationship, mm. you know, <laughs> it's a sense, it's a kind of type of ownership, which, um, you know, it's in some cases, which I've heard in show business, and I don't know, maybe in other parts of the world, in different economies and different politics, and that people have a handshake, people have respect, there's a code of honor, um, and that, that kind of uh, contractual agreement that you owe someone something and they owe you something, you know, mm. um, doesn't exist in, in a way that goes in that direction of power. Mm. 
yeah, and certainly you hear these stories of some agents who have worked with someone for decades and they do have that kind of agreement and that's a very smooth running relationship. But there can also be those experiences where there is that more, that power, that control. Um, you know, we see this in a range of, of course, um, you know, positions. I'm thinking of my own, you know, in terms of academia where often you can have a supervisor who is very collaborative, wants to see you grow, wants to see you change, wants to see you develop. And then there's someone who wants to keep you in the same position mm-hmm. you're in, see you almost as they own you, you know, my whatever, my postdoc, um, you know, my research assistant, whatever else. Um, it's interesting to hear it from that that entertainment, you know, point of view. Um, yeah, remember what John was saying about Colonel Parker and Elvis Presley. Mm. You know, every autograph photo had Elvis and the Colonel. Yes, absolutely. So that, that would be uh, indicative of that kind. But then, you know, not to go off, but uh, there's a wonderful documentary on a man named David Geffen, who mm. was an agent of mine very early on. Mm. And he has become, oh gosh, compared to a Jack Warner, a Louis mm. B. Mayer, you know, of an extremely important um, theatrical person on the planet. And, you know, Everyone, with one exception, that mm. was on the documentary, <laughs> um, and you know, this this man, if anyone wants to look him up, has an incredible history, and um, and he was associated with John Hartman, and John, John Hartman. is on, mm. yeah, John is on this documentary. Mm. It's very enlightening, very entertaining, and um, so interesting to see how this young boy from Brooklyn, you know, from immigrant family Mm. um, had a vision and, you know, he just had relationships and all the people that are, uh, are, you know, on this documentary, honor him with the exception of one, um, (laughs) honor him. I mean, even, even, uh, you know, Mo Austin, it, everyone will say, oh, my God, he, you know, he's the most important person in show business. Mm, I'm looking forward to seeing that because I, I, the documentary, I think, is the one you're talking about. It's the one on Netflix. Um, and I haven't seen it yet. But to, you know, certainly our listeners would be aware because John Hartman spoke to us about his relationship with David Geffen. And um, in answer to anyone wondering, you know, we when we last spoke to John, we were kind of probably up to his career in the 80s and they may be wondering, will we have him back on? We certainly will in the future. It's, it's just that with COVID and scheduling and everything else, we're, we're, we just need to find a time for us to all get back together, which we will. But, um, yeah, it... it I, I think it really does speak to there are so many ways to handle power or to work with people, particularly creative people, who I think is probably perhaps a very unique um, experience. And that idea that you were talking about, that when someone comes to you with ideas or what they want, that difference between seeing, speaking up as 
bad or aggressive versus what assertiveness is. Assertiveness is advocating for one's own needs um, and learning how to do that. I think that's a really hard thing to do, particularly when you ask someone who has either had to sacrifice to someone else's wishes, either because they've imposed that on you or, you know, you're perhaps the kind of person who takes that on somewhat voluntarily, I guess, um, although I'd argue if it's ever really voluntarily, you know, that idea of self-sacrificing to other people's wishes. It's a hard thing to learn the difference, I think, between speaking up for yourself and not seeing yourself as selfish or aggressive or inappropriate versus advocating for what you want and doing it in a position, I guess, of security. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think the security has to come from within and... Mm. You know, speaking from a lot of rejection in my life, mm. uh, that, you know, I, my relationship with you has proven to be so clear and so um, fluid mm. that, you know, judgment, criticism, um, any kind of... Uh, negativity has never existed and we've known mm. each other for over 20 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel the same. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a gift. And I'm sure that, you know, I would prefer attracting that type of a person that not only comes from their head, but comes from their heart and even their soul mm. to know that, you know, there's less, there's um, kind of the the wanting of no conflict so that you take time to listen and um, and maybe even if if one reacts that there's forgiveness mm. and mm. Um, there's you know there's no uh, grudges held um, so so there's a constant flow of creativity in that creativity begins with any awareness, you know, it's like, to me, it ultimately ends up with connecting to spirit, be thinking beyond what we see, you know, what we can see and touch and hear and feel. We, <laughs> we look out, well, where I live now and when I was in Hawaii, I lived in areas where there were very few city lights that mm. would obstruct the night sky. Mm. And when you look up in the sky and you see the planets and you see the moon and you see the stars beyond, you know, <laughs> there's just, there's just, it's a humbling experience. Mm. And yeah, I was just going to say with that in mind, I'm interested in how you actually discovered Sedona because when I'm thinking of night sky or open spaces mm -hmm. that's probably what comes to mind but yeah you, you talk about it and in subsequent episodes we're going to talk about more involvement in Sedona and that part of the world but uh, or that part of the United States but how did you first discover it mm. good old Maury ah there you go yeah he he decided uh, well you know I was a good provider right mm. so apparently he had been saving up some money and uh, decided to buy some land in Sedona. Right. And yeah. he had an artist friend who had lived there since the 50s mm -hmm. that kind of enticed him to go visit. And I also think um, that at that time, see, um, 
he was retired, mm. but he was still doing photography and he wanted to do exhibits. Mm. And so uh, Sedona was a decent drive from Los Angeles, you know, for him to take his artwork and show it. And I think the combination of those two things led him to be interested in buying land there. Um, so when he told me about that, uh, I had never heard of Sedona. Mm. And <laughs> and he, he said, well, then, you know, the next time we drive there, um, you know, follow me. Mm. So, so I did. And um, it completely captivated me, completely, as it does so many, so many people. I mean, the the um, monoliths or, you know, the vortex energy there. Some people, it's too strong. Mm. Others, others crave it. So, and uh, yeah, he ends up making a little investment and turning it over. So he didn't last long. I was going to say, yeah, didn't, did he, did they end up living there at all? Or was it more interesting? Right. Um, An interesting contradiction perhaps though, isn't it? With Maury, who Alice has known quite a bit about at this point, that he would be kind of attracted to an area like that, which I think holds a lot of, as you said, for a lot of people, very interesting energy associated with it. Yeah. Well, it's a very special place and um, it really, mm, it really has become an now it it's a, a, a worldwide attraction like the Grand Canyon, mm. and and so um, it's become quite commercialized and um, kind of overpopulated. Mm. So when I was there forty years ago, you know it was still fairly untamed, and. Uh, and you know the word got out. Norman didn't hear about it, but mm, mm. <laughs> but um, I bet he would have a few years later. <laughs> well, yeah, you know one of our one of our senators, John McCain, one of the American heroes, was living there, and mm. and um, and who else is living there now that I can think of? Mary Steenburgen and her husband. Oh, right. Ted Danson. Ted Danson, yeah, yeah, they live in Sedona, um, and you know just tons of tons of visitors and. Um, it, it it's still a gorgeous place. It's just kind of become a little like Disneyland for mm. people that want to check it out and have an ice cream cone and, you know, walk around. I don't know if they really get the, the power of the land and maybe just the sensational views or something mm. like that. But I kind of, last time I was in Sedona, I thought, you know, these mountains are so dense with copper and magnesium and so rich, rich history. And of course, the Navajo and, and um, I don't know beyond, beyond that uh, indigenous tribe mm. that would have inhabited that area. Um, uh, but I know there are more. Mm. Um, the, the magic of the land has to touch people even if they don't realize it. It, you know, it's not just a beautiful place. There is definitely an energy there. Mm. And in my heart of hearts, I'm hoping that they're getting a little bit of a healing when they do go there, even if they're not aware of it. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, we've spoken about water in particular and the healing properties of that. And, yeah, you think of 
the history, the natural um, landscape, the stories and the generations that, that belong to that. You know, I, I think as, as much as we can, which I think is only, you know, a minuscule, um, when I think of Indigenous people, whether those in the US or in mm-hmm. Australia, Every, for example. Everywhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the, something that we perhaps as non-Indigenous people um, don't have that depth of understanding in, in terms of the importance of land and the connection to land and the meaning of land. Um, so, yeah. you know, to spend time in these, these areas is really so precious and really needs to be protected, um, you know, in terms of development and, and you know, um, often men want. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly Good it, luck. I mean, yeah. the mountains are, all of the cathedrals and, you know, the, the monoliths that are standing they can't be developed, you know, mm. but they can be traversed. Mm. Um, and hopefully the kind of sacred energy that is there is felt when you do enter it. Uh, I had a very interesting experience one time um, by Cathedral Rock. And mm. I was just sitting at the entrance of the pathway and this man had just exited and he walked by me and he handed, he handed me a, a rock that was in the shape of a heart. Mm. And I didn't know him. He didn't know me. He just gave it to me and I accepted it. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is the kind of ritual uh, uh, reciprocity that the earth has a relationship with all of us humans and animals and all life on earth mm. that gives back. And, and this man just, you know, found a rock that was natural shape of a heart and decided to give it to me. And I, I was really appreciative. That's, I think that's just so, um, that tells it all, doesn't it? Just the shape of it, the connection to someone and yeah, just the, the sacred aspect of a lot of these places you know i know here in australia here in the northern territory where one of the you know the great wonders of the world uluru and prior to i think it was last year people could still climb it but it's it's acknowledged as a very sacred spot for um the indigenous people of australia and so to ban climbing on that um Mm -hmm. uh, came into effect so that you can still Mm -hmm. go see it you can still go marvel in it you can still go camp nearby but you can no longer traverse that because that was mm-hmm. seen as a, I guess, a point of, of um, whether it was disrespect or trauma, um, mm-hmm. you know, for this sacred spot. So, um, yeah. yeah, you know, really important, I think. Well, next time you come to visit me, mm. I will go to Sedona with you. Fantastic. And, and I hope and pray that mm. uh, I can visit you and mm-hmm. you can show me your special place mm. sadly i have never been there either so we will be doing it for the first oh. time which sounds criminal really because it's only a, well it's, it's it's a bit of a distance but we have planes you know um we can do this so no it would be the first time for me as well and you know i know that you spoke um and about something quite different that you spoke about sedona but then you briefly mentioned tokyo perhaps our listeners just briefly would be interested in how that came about that you went Mm. to tokyo to perform in the mid 80s yes well i had a friend who uh, invited me to go with her her family was from tokyo Mm. and um 
she was going to rather a, a grand family reunion, which was being held at the uh, Imperial Hotel. Mm. And so uh, I was asked to perform. Mm. And, and so I did. And, um, and someone there made a video of it. So on my magic CD, mm. um, if you put it on your computer, there's a video in the very first part of the CD. And that's my performance live in Tokyo. And then, and then the rest of the CD is all audio. I don't know how they do that, but that's Oh, it. yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, they can, um, uh, a listener can put on the CD, listen to it as a normal CD. The only thing that you will need your computer for is the, um, the video. Um, so that CD, as, as you said in the reading, came out in 2009 that uh, Jared kind of curated what was in, you know, sitting in boxes um, to produce uh, Magic, the 80s collection. Um, it's important to just say if anyone is interested in getting a copy of that, that is at store.com donnalauren.net um along along with um these are the good times as well which is your other compilation from work from the 60s which uh was recently reissued from the the record company that put that one out a few years back i know i was really surprised and uh, happily surprised you know <laughs> that they're reissuing it and so yeah. So life goes on, you know. <laughs> mm, absolutely, and so it should. And and um, you know, you talk about that. There was that Tokyo performance. There was a performance on Merv Griffin, um, which is on YouTube. And then there was a Jerry Lee Lewis um, performance. Besides going to the recording studio, which I guess, like you said, was like riding a bike. Was live performance similar in those experiences? Bearing in mind that they probably were quite different experiences. Was it a similar experience? Um, it's always about connecting, Doctor mm, Adam. Mm. You know, it's whatever it takes, a moment that, you know, whatever preparation and travel and whatever you need to do. But as soon as you begin connecting with those that are seated in the audience, uh, it's it's um, a very synergistic experience that uh, suddenly these People become part of your life and they're giving you three minutes or 30 minutes or maybe an hour or whatever mm -hmm. of their time. And, um, and they're connecting with you and you're connecting with them. And that's, that's, I think, very critical of by, you know, overcoming whatever differences you have. Find music is always, you know, that common denominator that. Even if you don't understand the language, if the music gives you a certain feeling, then there's a connection. And so I, I, I just feel, I don't know, wherever I am, it doesn't have to be on stage, but when, just walking down the street, you know, when you, when you make eye contact with someone, it's, it's just magical. Mm, mm, absolutely. And, and certainly, uh, even in these times, when you have a mask on, you can still make eye contact with people That's and the importance <laughs> of that. <laughs> That's a funny, 
funny way of life, isn't it? <laughs> it's a very different world. Watching old TV and, you you know, I was watching Seinfeld the other day and, they, you know, they were around the table. I'm like, why aren't they wearing masks? And I'm like, well, because this was three years ago <laughs> and my brain's just been re, um, reprogrammed into this. But I, I think it's so true, isn't it, that even in these, in these times, there's still ways to connect. That's still the most important thing. Um, and I think what, people mm. are getting more and more used to with Zoom, mm. you know, this this whole kind of, transformation to using a device to Mm. be closer and to see one another not just to hear one another you know that there there's there's been a bit of resistance in that but I think people are getting used to it and finding the um the you know the importance of however you can be close you know we used to just write letters Mm. and Mm. (laughs) and maybe a carrier pigeon would deliver it (laughs) you know so here we are in the 21st century and you know we're we've got all of these different ways to communicate with one another so um i think it's you know it's it's moving in that direction Uh, although i do want to say a prayer with you and with our listeners that the looming um conflicts in eastern europe Mm. are very, very, very concerning because for me it goes back to a way of life that has never really proven to be successful. Mm. And for me, war is not the answer. So I say a prayer that please, 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 at some point very, very soon for that kind of consciousness to be in the majority of all people on this planet and project that out so that when you when you vote for someone or when you live somewhere and and you know that that is just it's not the answer never has been conquering is not the answer and for those that that are into that kind of power i pray that we see that end. Mm. Yeah, so important with what's going on around the world and what we're hearing about. And yeah, if we take anything, I guess, away from any of this, it is about empathy and compassion and connection. Um, and in our own little way, we hope to do that on this podcast. That's we... why we call it Love's a Secret Weapon. Could it be the firelight dancing around you? Could it be the moon? Shining 